So if you remember, this is the passage that we skipped over before that we are coming back to sort of to, to make some connections with All Saints um, Sunday. We were in chapter four, verses one through th- three, where the Apostle Paul writes, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So let's go to the Lord of Prayer. Father God, we come before you, um, God, praying for um, all the many um, cares and concerns that we have in our hearts. Um, God, we continue to pray for um, the future of our congregation. Um, God, we pray for the um, the things that are in the future, the direction to go, the decisions that you would have us make. God, help us to follow you in all things. Help us to um, make decisions with wisdom. God, we pray that you would make the path clear for us. Um, we confess that we oftentimes um, do not know um, what is best. We do not know the, the decisions that are good and and good, better, and best. Um, and God, we want to follow you and we want um, all the blessing that you have for us. And so help us to, to make the decisions that are wise. God, we know that even if we make poor decisions, um, God, that you are a God of, of faithfulness and that you will care for your people and that you will be with us and minister to us. And so we trust in that in all um, circumstances, but but still we, we want um, these things to work um, according to, to what is good and what is best. So help us to make those decisions. God, bless the life of our church. Encourage us as we reach out to friends and neighbors, as we reach out to our coworkers and our schoolmates. Help us as we reach out um, to to those who are unchurched and those who have never been to church, um, those who, um, God, know Jesus Christ and yet have fallen away, and those who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to be uh, evangelists. God, we are scared of that word, and, and, and probably many of us, if, if we were told we are, that we are evangelists, God, that we would, that we would cringe at that, that we would be nervous about that. And yet your word calls every single one of us to that reality that we are good news tellers and that we should be taking the good news with us, uh, as we go and sharing it with the world. And so help us to do that, uh, as we are faithful, um, to share, God, that you would be faithful to, to grow our congregation and bring people into the kingdom. Again, Father, as we always do, we pray for the churches of Blount County. Um, we ask for your blessing on every gospel preaching, Bible believing, Christ exalting church in Blount County. Um, God, we, we, um, ask that you would bless their ministries, that you would expand, um, their reach and influence, that, um, people would come to know Jesus, um, through uh, the witness of that church through their ministries, God, through the individuals that represent those churches, um, that you would bless and grow and work in our community, um, to make this a place, um, that is, it is full of, of your children and full of followers of Jesus. 
God, we ask that your spirit would go before us in these things. Help us to be faithful. And God, we trust in you to do the work. Um, We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are, um, today is is, um, All Saints Sunday. So as you, if you've been with us for a few years, the way we usually do All Saints is we, I'll preach through a passage of scripture, but then I'll tie it in, in terms of the illustrations to a character from church history and, and zoom in on, on that person and how their life exemplifies the things going on in the passage. We're going to do a little bit different this, this year because the passage, the, the event from history, we're not so much looking specifically at a person's life, but we're looking at a specific instance in church history, in pretty recent church history. Um, and, and how it, is, is sort of an illustration of some of the principles that we see here and, and ways that things could have been done in a proper way. I'll, I'll confess to you that, that I had intended to make my personage, personage, personage that I was going to focus in on this time would be J.I. Packer. And so J.I. Packer, um, James Packer or Jim Packer, as he was known to his friends, um, was born in Twining, England in 1926. He passed away just um, a few years ago in 2020 at the age of 93. And I was going to use him as the person that I was going to talk about. And then I had read a biography of his. He's one of my favorite um, contemporary writers. Like, I've, I, you know, I love C.S. Lewis, but along with C.S. Lewis, probably the other person um, that his corpus of work that I have been most influenced by would be J.I. Packer. And so... Wanted to talk about him, but came across this story in the, in his, in his life and his involvement with this situation. Um, and then noticed a connection with, with Philippians in, in this issue that we see in this verse that has to do with interpersonal conflict. It has to do with the fact that sometimes in the church, sometimes as believers, we get, um, we get into conflict with other people in the church. And, and that can cause a lot of tension and there can be all kinds of difficulty and fallout from those kind of things. And so, um, notice a, a connection in his life and the story of his life and a connection to, to this passage. And so that's what we're going to zoom in on a little bit. But I just want to tell you a little bit about Packer himself in general. Um, so an interesting thing about Packer is he was hit by a car when he was seven years old. Just the nightmare of all chill, uh, parents, right? He ran out into the street. He was hit by the, a car. He was struck in the head, had a serious head injury that, that for, um, it, it took a long time for him to recover from. If you look at pictures of him as an elderly man, you can see where the, the wound was, right? Because it, it, it permanently deformed his skull. And as he got older and, and, and frailer and, and thinner, you can see that the place on his head where that, where the wound was. Um, but because of that injury, he was he was stuck in the house a lot, right? He couldn't go out and be active with boys. In fact, he basically had to wear like a helmet for a long, long time until that that place in his head um, began to heal. But as a function of that, being stuck inside, not being able to do the things that normal kids can do, he he turned to books, right? And he became an avid reader, an avid lover of books. When he was 11 years old, he was gifted a typewriter that he cherished as one of his prized possessions. And those two little pieces sort of were... We're giving a, a, we're foretelling the way that his life would go because he became a man of books, a man of letters, you would call it, right? And he was a writer.
writer and a theologian. And, and that was the way that he, he most influenced the Christian world. Uh, he went to Oxford later on, studied theology. Um, he became an ordained Anglican priest, but again, um, tended to focus more on the educational side of Christian ministry as opposed to the pastoral ministry side of it. Um, he became one of the stalwart uh, uh, leaders of the post-war evangelicalism, all right? And so he is a guy that the guys that I respect all respected, right? He is of a, he is my grandparents' generation as opposed to my parents' generation. So all those dudes from my parents' generation that I look up to, they all looked up to J.I. Packer. But the cool thing about J.I. Packer was he lived so long and his ministry lasted so long. He was still teaching and writing and doing all these things up into his late eighties that he became an influencer, not only for the generation that followed him, but for the, for, for my generation too. And so have been very influenced by th- him. One of the things he's known for is his love and revival of Puritan theology. And so he was a guy that um, he, he loved the theology and the spirituality of the, the Puritans. You can tell the influence of that on me if you have ever been to our good little book studies, because about every third, sometimes every other little book study, good little book study we do, we jump back into a Puritan writer. And I know those aren't always the easiest books to, to read and to, to wade through, but, but they have been influential on, on my life. And so that's why we keep on going back to them. He's got a couple little books that I would recommend to you. One is this book called The Quest for Godliness. If you are interested in the Puritans, if you're not, don't read this book, okay? But if you are, if you're interested in their thought and their life and their spirituality, you should read A Quest for Godliness. Um, it is one of the books where he basically sort of expounds on all the different aspects of, of Puritan thought and life. Um, but probably more to the point, ones that you would maybe be a little more likely to read. Um, he wrote a book in the late 60s, early 70s called Knowing God. And Knowing God is a modern day Christian classic. It's been sold, you know, over a million copies or whatever. It is a book that I would recommend to anybody. I have read it multiple times during my life. You should go to it because it will, it, it, it will bless your soul. Okay. Um, very, very applicable. It's, it's not as, as, as heady or nebulous as some things. Um, but just a, a, an incredible book. Uh, also another one that has been a good little book study for us before is a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God that he wrote, which is, uh, a super helpful work on basically how to understand reform theology when it connects to the ideas of salvation and conversion and evangelism. Okay. So those are just a couple of things that he is known for in books that I would recommend to you. Um, but here's one more thing he's known for. He was also known for his ecumenism. All right. Now you may say, actually, I don't know that word. What is ecumenism? All right. Well, it is, it is the idea, the aim of promoting unity among the world's church, Christian churches, right? So if you are ecumenical or ecumenism, right, use those words, it's the idea of saying, hey, man, we're all Christians. Why don't we all get together and be on the same page? Now, you might say, well, that sounds lovely, right? I would That would say it'd be great if we all got on the same page. Here's the problem. It's not, okay? Ecumenism is often not used as a, as a, uh, good term, 
Okay. It's oftentimes used in a negative way. And the reason is, is this, because oftentimes when people talk about ecumenical churches, ecumenical theology, ecumenical movements, the way they are perceived is that what they are really doing is watering down theology that they are trying to least common denominator, the, the, the Christian faith, um, and that it is a function of weak willed faith. Um, that is, that is the, the thing that is bringing everybody together. Okay. Now here's the deal. That is not the brand of ecumenism that J.I. Packer, uh, supported. Okay. So although he might have been accused of it in certain contexts, but he did work for a cooperation, a dialogue among believers of orthodox belief, of gospel belief, but also trying to take that gospel belief into the places where they didn't believe those things and, and, and trying to encourage churches that were less orthodox to believe the gospel and, and live according to it. Okay. And that's what we come to in this illustration that we're going to use for the rest of our sermon. Um, it surrounds this ecumenism that he, that he was a part of. Um, and it happens in England in the year 1966 around this event called the Second National Council of Evangelicals. And it's between, the issue of contention is between probably the three most prominent British evangelicals of their time, and that is J.I. Packer, John Stott, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Okay, some of you maybe heard some of those names. Maybe you haven't, but that's okay if you haven't. Just kind of as we talk about the story, you'll see how all these pieces play together. But let's first look at our passage again and get a foundation for where we're going to start. So in verse one, he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So Paul raises this issue of these two women who are at odds with each other. Euodia and Syntyche. It's a fun name to say. I just like saying it, Syntyche, Syntyche. We have no knowledge of what their problem was. We don't know what they were arguing over, right? Um, we only have the fact that there is a disagreement and that that disagreement has at least gotten enough traction that Paul knows about it, even though he's in a completely different city and he's worried about it and concerned about it. It feels like he needs to mention it in his letter. So is it a personal problem between the two of them? Is it a church-related problem? Is it a belief issue? The reality is, is we don't know for sure because there's no other information that we have. And so that might tempt a lot of people to just come to this passage and go, yeah, 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 some little historical nugget that there's no way we can know anything about, just move on and there's nothing here to, to glean from at least of any substance, but I think there is. Um, in fact, I think there's foundational stuff here to notice that could involve any kind of conflict that we have in the church. Anytime you have an interpersonal conflict or a conflict about belief or a conflict about anything in the church, I think there could be some interesting, there's some interesting stuff that we can see here. And so we begin this passage by noticing Paul's exhortation to them. And that is, he, he asks that they would agree in the Lord. Okay. Euodia, Syntyche, I want you guys to agree in the Lord. Now, here's the deal. So think about it. that. That tells us something right there about their conflict. Again, we don't know the specifics, but it tells us something about their conflict. One is this. There can be no agreement with falsehood. Right? The scriptures would never tell us to agree 
if there was falsehood going on. And so if these ladies are supposed to agree, I don't think it's it's because it's not, it can't be an issue of true belief and, and false belief. It can't be an issue of true doctrine and false doctrine. Because I don't think Paul would tell them to agree in that situation. He would say, hey, one of you needs to repent of your false belief or action or whatever else and and go the other way. Paul never calls us to agree in falsehood. And so my suspicion is that it's not a situation of right and wrong that they are disagreeing over. Again, because somebody would need to repent in that situation. And probably moreover, it's not a situation of unreconcilable differences. Okay? It's not a situation where Paul's like, guys, there's no way you're ever going to get through like you're, you have diametrically opposed positions on this thing. So the best case would probably just go to your separate ways or maybe to find some sort of compromise or something that tries to meet halfway or something. But again, that's not what he says. He says, no, I want you to agree in the Lord. And so this is my suspicion. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping out kind of on a limb, but I think it must be complementary viewpoints. It's a situation where there are these, these women have two different ideas, but those, and they seem like they contradict each other in some way, but they're meant to be held in tension in the Christian life. So two things that are true, two things that are good viewpoints, both that have to be taken into consideration, and yet they naturally create a level of disagreement. They just can't help but do that, right? Okay. Um, Again, could be personal, could be ministerial, could be something. We don't know. But it's interesting because that's exactly the kind of thing that happens in at this council in 1966 in England and the specific controversy that comes out of it, which is called the secession controversy. Okay, not succession, but secession, like the the, the South seceding from the Union, right? The breaking away of one group from another group. It's called the secession controversy. And here's what it was about. So in England and in America, if you don't know kind of your, your history of the last, say, 80 to 100 years, in, in England and America, after World War II, they experienced this uptick in evangelicalism. All right. So all of a sudden there was this renewed emphasis on evangelical doctrine, on church attendance, on uh, new in- evangelical institutions were being formed. Right. If you think in our own kind of context here in, in East Tennessee, in the south, in Appalachia, uh, man, Billy Graham, that's what Billy Graham appears in. Right. He comes out of this post-war generation and they start doing these things like the Youth for Christ movement and these evangelism movements and stuff like that, these youth evangelism movements, and all this stuff is 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 popping all over um, the Western world, okay, after World War II. Um, however, at the same time, there remained, and especially in England, and especially in English Christianity, there's a strong presence of liberalism in the church there, okay? If you're reading the book that we're reading together, Christianity and Liberalism, he's writing that book in 1923. The stuff that he's going to talk about is the exact stuff that is at, at issue in 1966 in this, this, the world that they're living in. Okay. And so when I say liberal Christianity, you may go, well, what do you mean by that, Ash? I mean by liberal Christianity, a Christian faith that claims to be faithfully Christian and yet denies the essential elements of Christian belief. Okay. So a church or an individual that says, yeah, yeah, I'm still a Christian, but I deny the Trinity. I deny the atonement. 
I deny the miracles of Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the authority of Scripture, or, or a host of other issues, okay? And so there was a strong influence of that, right? People who were saying, oh, I'm still a good, I'm still a good Christian. I'm still a good Anglican. I'm still a good whatever. I just don't believe in all that God stuff anymore, right? And th- those kind of crazy things that, that we would go, that doesn't even seem to make sense in the world of evangelicalism. So what happened is in that world where liberalism was still pushing in different ways, the evangelicals in the, in England, in the United Kingdom, even though they were from different denominations, they decide, you know what we need to do? We need to get together. We need to have a conference. Um, we need to be together for the gospel, okay? And, and that was a conference that we used to go to for years. Presbyterians and, and Anglicans and Baptists and all these different denominations would come together. Why? Because they were together for the gospel. It was the same idea in, in this evangelical conference that they were having. And so they were getting together at this conference to talk about unity in the church, Unity among evangelicals of different denominations. And the first speaker to get up and share was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, if you don't know that name, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Congregationalist minister. Um, he looks like one of the balcony uh, Muppets from from um, uh, the Muppet show, right? Exactly. Like when you see a picture of him as an old man, you're like, oh, that's where they got it from. Okay, that makes sense now. Um, but, but... The reality was is this is regardless of how he looked, um, he was one of the most well-respected pastors uh, and preachers of evangelical Christianity in England at the time. And so he was asked to speak first to open up this this conference on unity among evangelicals. And his sermon was basically on how there could be no unity or working together if there was not theological unity and agreement within the church. He basically said the true church was marked by its fidelity to the gospel and to the word of God. And if a believer were to find themselves in a church that did not believe those things, then that believer should leave that church and go and associate himself or herself with believers who did believe those things. That was what he said. Okay. Now I, I, you go, yeah, yeah, right. That sounds really good. Okay. But, but hear the tension here because the effect of the message was that Martin Lloyd Jones was basically saying at a conference about unity, there can be no unity. We can't have unity the way you guys are talking about it. This interdenominational unity, because a lot of you guys come from denominations that there are huge elements within them that don't believe the gospel that are unorthodox in their belief. There's no way we can have unity with those groups. What really needs to happen is you guys need to quit your denominations and your churches and come over here to the good side, right? And and, and be with us, okay? Now, this other guy named John Stott, who was also one of the most respected um, leaders in, in English evangelicalism at the time, just as another book recommendation, if you want something heavy, he has a book called The Cross of Christ, which is one of the best books that you could read on, on the atonement and like the whole picture of Jesus dying for our sins. Okay. It's a big, thick book. I'm not saying it's an easy one, but, but it's also a classic. So John Stott's the guy that organized this conference. He is a member of the Anglican church. Now, what you need to know about the Anglican church is, is this. The Anglican church has always been sort of an umbrella for people thinking lots of different ways, okay? There are lots of different sects 
in the, the, the Anglican church. There's an evangelical group. There's a, what they would call an Anglo Catholic group. There are reformed elements. There are evangelical elements. There's liberal elements. There's all these different groups, but they're all under the umbrella of the Anglican church. So Stott is in the Anglican church. He wants to stay in the Anglican church. He wants to be an influence in the Anglican church. And he hears Martin Lloyd-Jones preach this sermon, and he is worried that immediately somebody with Martin Lloyd-Jones' clout and respect, all these young Anglican evangelicals are going to hear this message. You know what they're going to do? They're going to exit the Anglican church. They're going to bail right? They're going to go somewhere else. And he's like, man, we need all these young evangelicals in the Anglican church. And Martin Lloyd-Jones got up here and he's going to run them all off and they're all going to leave and go to his denomination or something like that. So John Stott gets up after Martin Lloyd-Jones steps down and he basically says, well, Lloyd-Jones, I disagree with you. And I think history is against you. And I think the Bible is against you. Okay. Now, That may sound very pedestrian to you, but let me assure you in English evangelicalism, that is shots fired. Okay. Um, that there is, there is contention at this point. And so the interesting thing is, is that Packer, J.I. Packer, who we're sort of focusing on was not even at this meeting, right? He wasn't even there at the time, but because he was such already a big name, a person who was respected in the evangelical world, he was immediately asked to weigh in on this issue. And he had sort of a complicated situation. This is the reason why. Because he was close personal friends with Lloyd-Jones. He had sat under Lloyd-Jones' teachings for two or three years as a member of his church. He was close personal friends with his family. But he agreed with John Stott. He thought, no, evangelicals need to stay in the Anglican communion and work to make it the kind of church that actually everybody believes the gospel um, and use our influence in that way. So here's what happened though. The result was a fracturing of the relationships. These three men who had been functionally on the same team at this point, all of a sudden were part of different sects now. And that fracturing had ripples that would last in English evangelicalism for decades, really in some ways, probably even up to the current day, um, hurting all parties, causing dissension among the ranks of those who by any other measure would be considered brothers in Christ and hindering the progress of the gospel in the United Kingdom. So here's part of what was being argued over. We've talked about this many times before because it is a, a issue that pops up all the time in the Christian faith. Part of what was going on is the idea of unity versus purity. Okay. Unity in the church versus purity in the church. Which one of those two things should take precedent? The Bible talks about both of them. We got to have unity. We got to have purity. But what if those things come into conflict with each other? So Lloyd-Jones says right-believing people should pull out of their churches and denominations for the sake of purity. And Stott and Packer said they should stay unified with those groups in hope of influencing those churches and denominations for the gospel. 
It's funny because all three of these dudes love the Puritans, and this is such a Puritan problem. It's a pure, it's a, it's a problem for all of the church, but it's a, particularly for the Puritans. Cause, and all it takes is two seconds of thinking about it to see why. How did our country get founded? It got founded because some people said, we cannot be a part of this system anymore. They won't let us worship the way we want to. We've got to leave here and go somewhere where we can do church and Christianity the way that we see fit. Let's move to America. In some cases, let's move to the Netherlands, right? There were groups of people who left their country in England to come here so they could have purity of their church. But there were other people, people like John Bunyan, who said, no, I'm going to stay here and we'll see what happens. And I'm going to continue to preach the gospel. And I'm going to pray that God uses that to change the congregations of England and make them more faithful to the gospel. Okay. And so that was a big Puritan problem. And yet all three of these guys love the Puritans. And it's almost like they don't see it, right? They don't see it when it's happening to themselves. Although in a lot of ways, they probably do see it. We'll see that in a minute. So I want to use that situation as the illustration for the rest of the passage. And see if we can't glean some things and learn from, from what we're coming to. So here's the deal. So we go back to the beginning of the passage, verse 1. So here's the deal. When we have a conflict with somebody in the church, if we have a division on whatever level. The first thing that we need to do is say this. We need to begin with love and with truth. All right? We need to begin with love and truth. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So notice Paul states the issue. He reminds them first of this great love that he has for them, right? And I think he's saying it because he's not just trying to say, I love you guys, but he's basically saying, this is how you should feel about each other. You should be able to look at the person who is your brother or sister in Christ in your church and say, You are my love, the person I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. I don't think oftentimes people in churches feel that deeply about their brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's how Paul feels about the the church of Philippians. We talked about that as the very first sermon we did in this series, right? Paul uses this gushing language about how much he cares for and loves this church. But also he says, guys, stand firm in the Lord. His love is not an excuse for bending the rules in some way. And so the church must must have a commitment to both these things, to truth and to love. And so love doesn't abandon. It seeks the good of the beloved. It fights for unity. It serves and sacrifices for the sake of the whole. But also, truth doesn't compromise. It doesn't say, well, you know, it's just some little issue and we can pretend like it's no big deal. And so we'll just go about our lives, try not to address it, try not to deal with it. We have to hold these truths in tension all the time. These two realities, truth and love, truth and love. And there's a specific application, I think, here. And this is the key. When you disagree with someone in the church, anytime, for any reason, If you do not truly love that person, if your goal is not for their good and their blessing, but is driven by some maybe more selfish or adversarial motive, then the disagreement is not going to resolve. It's probably going to escalate, right? If it is your goal to win, 
and not work towards the good of the other person, then, then the problem is not going to get solved no matter how much you guys engage and disagree. Whether that's a simple disagreement, whether it's a confrontation of sin, right? We get into some church discipline conversation in this thing too. But love has to be the water that we are swimming in in the middle of these discussions. But then at the same time, out of that love has to come the ability to be able to say hard things to people. Have you ever noticed acquaintance is very polite? Man, when you're just an acquaintance with somebody, that's so polite. Man, you never say anything to rock the boat or to get anybody worked up. Casual, man, keeps it shallow. But love does hard work and says hard things sometimes. Love is serious. Sometimes it's heavy. And it can be heavy because it has the freedom to be because the other person knows at the end of the day that this person loves me. This person wants what's best for me. They may be saying some things that I don't want to hear. They may be saying some things that are really difficult for me to accept or process or deal with. But at the end of the day, they're not doing this because they're trying to get on their high horse or take the, the moral high ground or something like that. They're doing this because they love me, they are for me, and they're not against me. So when we confront a disagreement, if the other person is not convinced of our love, then the truth that we share is going to be hard for them to receive. Okay? And man, that's a, that's a, that's something to pause and think about. If you're about to go in and tell somebody the truth, you, we need to make, you need to make sure that they know your love for them first, because they're probably going to receive it the wrong way if they don't. So that's first thing. Second principle that we can glean from this is the idea that all of us, including people who are not directly involved in the situation, are supposed to be agents of peace and unity in those in those places. So look what he says in verse three. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Paul is asking for someone outside of these two women. He says, you two ladies need to agree in the Lord. But then he says, hey, true companion. Would you help these ladies agree in the Lord? So you say, cool, who's the true companion? We don't know. We don't know who he's talking to. Uh, true companion, it's not mentioned anywhere else. It's just this name that is thrown in there, this this title. Um, could be Epaphroditus, could be another uh, leader in Philippi that Paul is very close to. And so he's, you know, who knows that Paul would use that kind of language to talk to him. Some people think it's actually just a... a He's talking about the whole church, essentially. Like he's saying, hey, true companion, my true friends, my true, um, you know, brothers and sisters, you guys, all of you, church, help these ladies agree in the Lord. So we don't know exactly, but we still get the same picture regardless of who he's talking about. Paul is asking those outside of the immediate situation to help the situation come to a resolution. Okay, we who are not directly involved are to be a balm, a salve to the conflict, not an accelerant. We are not throwing gasoline on a fire, although oftentimes that what's that's what ends up happening. Instead of calming tensions, we facilitate the disagreement in some way. 
Okay. So what does that mean? That means a, it's not our job to, if we're not directly involved in it, it's not our job to pick sides. It's not our job to rally support. It's not our job, um, to, to, um, start to form our battle lines with, with one or the other person, right? Our job is to work towards the reconciliation and resolution of those two people. Okay. Um, we don't do that. That's not the way most of the time, um, people work. Okay. What usually happens is if you got beef with somebody, you start going and, and venting. We love that word venting. I love that word venting. I love telling people that, guys, I just needed to vent a little bit. And by vent, I meant that I need to gossip in an attempt to get you on my side. That's what I mean by venting. Okay? That's not what you think you mean, but that's what you mean most of the time. Is you're trying to get people to agree with you that you're in the right and that other person is in the wrong. And so you start building support for your side. And then the people who aren't even involved just go along with it. They say, I'll enlist. I'll join your army. I'll join your cause. I'll be on your side. That's not our job. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be helping the situation. And so we talked about it a few weeks ago in the nine marks class. Matthew 18 gives us a run through of how we are supposed to address conflict in the church. Okay. Particularly when one person is sinned against another person. And you know how we start with that? We always start with saying the person who has been sinned against goes and addresses personally and privately the person who has sinned against them. That's how we start. So if you've been sinned against by somebody in the church, and again, I'm not pointing fingers because I'm the chief. Uh, We've all do this. Okay. If someone has sinned against you in the church, before you go and tell anybody else about it, before you go and say, girl, let me tell you what he did. Um, before you do any of that, you know what you need to do? You need to go to the person who sinned against you and say, Hey, got a problem. Here's what's going on. Okay. We know what the next step is, or, or, or maybe you do. If they say baloney, I don't care. Get away from me. You know what you're talking about. You're an idiot and you hate me, whatever. Then you say, okay. So now at this point you go and you get says a couple of other people. You go and tell all your friends about it? No. You take a couple of people who you confide in, who you, who are trustworthy, who you know are the kind of people who are not going to be like standing in your corner, you know, holding your jacket for the fight, but are going to be people who are like, no, I'm going to be helpful to bring this situation to a, to a resolution. Okay. You go ask some of those people and you go along and you say, Hey, brought these two friends um, to be mediators in this whole process. Here's the issue again. Um, God willing, what do they do at that point? They say, you're right. Shouldn't have done that. I repent in sackcloth and ashes and, and whatever. Right. But if they don't, then what do you do? Bible says, then you bring it before the church. Okay. So again, what we do is usually the complete opposite, right? Is we bring it before everybody first. And then we, and then we zoom in on a couple people who we know it can be our allies. And then like, now that things on fire and collapsing, then we go and we like, Hey man, me and you need to talk about this thing or whatever. That's not the way that we're supposed to do. If you're not involved in it, be a help. Help to resolve. Um, man, give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, think the best about people. Think that, try to think through what it is that even if they're acting in an unreasonable or sinful way towards you, man, try to think, man, what could be going on in this person's life that they would respond this way to me? Again, man, nobody does this well. 
we're, we're bad at this. But this is what Paul's calling us to. So he says, be a help here. That was not the case in the secession controversy, okay? Um, that was not what happened. Though interestingly is, is, is this. Historians have noted that all of the heat around the controversy didn't come from Stott, didn't come from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and didn't come from J.I. Packer. You know where the heat came from? All of their little followers, right? All of their, uh, the people who were in their camps, the supporters, the protégés, the sycophants, right? All of those guys were the ones that stirred it up. Packer, Stott, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, man, were cool, right? Because they were solid men of God and were not given to be people who just fly off the handle even when there's a disagreement. But the people around them were. The people who should have been the key people to help them reconcile and to work through this thing were the people who did the opposite. I love Packer. Packer makes the comment, like, here's a man in Martin Lloyd-Jones who he is now in sort of disfellowship with. Their, their churches don't associate with each other. He doesn't get invited to speak at his church. He doesn't get invited to speak at his church or his conferences. They go their separate ways. But you know what Packer says about Lloyd-Jones? He says, he was the greatest man I ever knew. He was the most godly man that I've ever encountered in my entire life. And to think about, man, there's a tragedy in that. Now, they reconciled and, and things were better later on in life. But to think about the fact that you would look at another brother or sister of Christ and say, I think you're the best person who I've ever known. And we can't work together, right? We can't do things together anymore because of this division that has happened in our our uh, relationship. That's tragic. And it was tragic for the church, the evangelical movement in the United Kingdom. Maybe we all, we probably all know the questions that, that you hear when we come to these things, right? Before you say something, before you get involved, before you give advice, any of those things, ask yourself, is it true? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? And if it's not those three things, then you should probably just say, man, I, I, I probably am not the person that needs to be brought into this situation. Paul says, help these women come to an agreement in the Lord. All right? Two two closing thoughts, and then, and then we'll be done. Third, Paul reminds them that we're all on the same team. Okay? We're not supposed to be enemies in this thing. We're supposed to be on the same team. He, he, he talks about these two women, and he says, these two women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. We are on the same team. We have the same goals. That is the exaltation of Christ. That is the spread of the gospel. Um, if you get in an argument and the person across from you is your adversary, they're your enemy, and the goal is therefore to protect yourself against their attacks and win the battle, then things are going to go a certain way, Right? But if you look at that person across from you and say, this is my co-laborer, we work together, we serve together under the same Lord. The best case scenario is to fix this thing, right? Not to ignore the problem, but because this other person is an integral part of my army, my team, us working together for the, the, the movement of the gospel, then, then that's going to change the whole way you see it. So again, here was the reality. Each of these guys in this controversy were big names, right? They're big names. Everybody knew who they were. They had books written and they had ministries and they had probably radio 
broadcasts and things like that or whatever. But you know what the truth was? Is they all needed each other. Okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones was in the Congregationalist Church. That's something similar to Baptist. Not quite, but we are Congregationalists, right? We believe the same things in some way. They were not part of the official church, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, right? So guess what? It was helpful for Martin Lloyd-Jones to have connections who were connected to the Anglican Church, right? Because it got his voice heard among those people, right? And the same thing was true is that Packer and Stott, coming from the Anglican Church, which was much, well, much better funded and had bigger churches and more influence and colleges and all, you know, I mean, all of those awesome colleges in, in England, Oxford and Cambridge, they're all Anglican, right? The reality was is that they had clout and influence that would be helpful for Martin Lloyd-Jones, except the problem was is now none of them could talk with each other, and so the key pieces that they all needed to work together went missing. And it hurt the congregation as a whole because they didn't realize, or maybe they did, but, but it seemed like it was worth sacrificing at the time that they were on the same team. And so I would say, brothers and sisters, we are on the same team. We need each other if we are going to accomplish the mission that God has given us. So if there's somebody that you go, man, I just can't, I can't deal with it anymore, right? then that is going to hinder the church. Again, are there things that that impede that? Of course there are. Man, if there's an issue of sin and people are unrepentant of their sin, that's a problem. We, we You don't get to a resolution at that part, right? What we see in that Matthew 18 thing is that as you go through it, if they're unrepentant all the way to the end, then you basically break fellowship with them and treat them as an unbeliever. And that's a tragedy, but it is a necessary step that has to be taken. So I'm not saying reconciliation at any cost. Remember, love and truth. But we are on the same team, and Paul points us towards that as why we should get along. And one last thing, finally he reminds them, not only are they people who are working together, but they are people who are going to spend eternity together. So what is the very last phrase in verse 3? He says, all these people, Euodia, Syntyche, true companion, Clement, my fellow workers, all those who labored beside, what's the common denominator? One, we are all working together on the same team. And two, all our names are written in the book of life. We are all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. We are all people who are going to spend eternity in the same place together. And not only will we spend eternity together, but as the song goes, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That thing, that conflict, that problem that you thought was such a big deal that there was no way that the two of you could ever reconcile, I guarantee will seem stupid in eternity, right? In fact, all I can think of is like we will all look back and laugh and go, we were like children fighting over sticks and stones in a backyard somewhere, right? It will be so absurd the things that we broke fellowship over once we are there in eternity. Again, most of our differences, most of our conflict conflicts are petty. They are silly things. 
I'm always mediating my kids' squabs, right? <laughs> As I'm sure you are or will be one day in the future, right? And man, I'm always trying to remind them that the things that they are so worked up over are so small and so insignificant. But you know what? I'm not great at telling my own self that message. That the things that I am oftentimes worked up about are probably pretty small and insignificant in light of eternity. Can there be big issues? For sure there can. The reality is, is not, not everything I'm talking about is, is like this. There are some things that necessarily break fellowship with, with other people, right? That, that, that's the reality. But not most things, I don't think. So whether the conflict is big or small, it does not change the fact that we will stand shoulder to shoulder with each other before Christ in eternity. And so we close on that idea, you know, Paul has been talking about it the whole time and that there's a special application here. Paul's been talking about this theme of unity throughout the whole book. And it almost makes you wonder if like he was building up all of that because of the conflict. I don't know that it, it seemed, I, we don't know the nature of it. So it would almost seem weird for him to make so much an issue out of these two ladies arguing unless it, it was a much bigger issue than, than we know. But regardless of the fact that theme of unity has been Paul's heart throughout the book of Philippians. And here's the deal. The presence of conflict does not negate unity. Okay. We are unified. Okay. We are family. We are one under Christ. Not, well, if we do everything that they were supposed to be doing, we'll be unified. No, we are. Unity is a reality. The question is, is are we living out that unity in a good way? So conflict and disagreement are going to come because we're humans and we got different opinions and we're stupid and we're sinful and we mess up sometimes. That's going to happen. That disagreement does not break the unity because the unity is reality. What it means is that just other people will look on and go, boy, there's a really jacked up unity they got over there. It's not a very good unity. It looks messy. It looks ugly. A marriage could be like that, right? You could be in a situation where you say, man, we are, we are united by God, by covenant. We are united. But you know what? Man, we don't feel very united. Marriages get there all the time. It's often something that happens. But you know what? It doesn't change the unity. You are unified in those situations. And Paul is calling us to agree in the Lord, work through those issues in love, in faithfulness, recognizing we're on the same team and knowing that we're going to spend eternity together. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask that he would um, use those things in our hearts and minds over the coming, our, our entire lives. Again, I keep on throwing reference to the reality that um, we are probably going to be in for another interesting year uh, in terms of elections and politics and things like that. It's probably going to happen, right? I know I'm super long today, right? Um, this is a long sermon. Um, man, it's coming. Let's agree in the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We love you. We praise you. Um, God, we know we're not good at this. 
We're no, we know we're not good at fair fighting. We know, we know we're not good at uh, agreeing in the Lord. God, help us to do this so that we can be people who present the unity, the love, the, the togetherness um, of the church to the entire world. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song.